your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. We're going to read the whole um, chapter as it all relates, but it is particularly the end where Paul speaks about the Word of God that is our concern. To Timothy 3, we'll begin at verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all my, about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in, in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This the, thus for the reading of God's holy word. Then to our Belgic Confession, Forms and Prayers books, page 154, Trinity Psalter Hymnal 855, and Article 3, so in Article 1, we acknowledge the one only God. In Article 2, we understand that God must make himself known to us, and he does that both in creation and through a special revelation, his divine word. And now we begin a mini-series on the word of God. For the Belgian Confession devotes Articles 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 to this topic. And Article 3 begins that, where we confess this. We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. And afterwards, our God, because of the special care he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. He himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. This the church 
does believe. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, what it is that we believe as Christians, as church, is not difficult to summarize. It's not difficult if someone asks, what do you believe? We could, of course, summarize the Apostles' Creed as we've just done. We could say it. We could say we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier of all those, of all of a life and of those who He has redeemed. We could also quite easily quote from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. There are a number of ways in which we can give a very pithy, very quick, very simple explanation of what it is that we believe. But if we were asked where we came up with that, where did we learn that, where is that given to us, how do we know that that's true, and we face a rather daunting challenge. It's easy to say what we believe. It is challenging to say where we were given this truth. For while it is true that we believe in the triune God, while it is true that we believe in Jesus, the Messiah who died on the cross, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, while we believe the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost Sunday so that we might be given the strength to believe and survive and to to carry on in this life, we believe those things only because they are communicated to us in the Bible. That is, that the whole system of our theology, the entire uh, uh, enormity of our faith, everything that can be said about the Christian faith, all rests on one single book, the Bible. That's where we're taught. That's where, we're ex- where it's explained to us. That's where Jesus is presented to us. That's where the message of salvation is found. It all rests on one book. And that presents a challenge. It presents a challenge to us, but it presents a challenge that comes to us from the world, from our enemies, especially from the devil. Revelation 12 reminds us that the devil, when, when he seeks to to overwhelm the church does so by opening his mouth to allow a torrent to flow from it. We think dragons tend to breathe fire, but in the book of Revelation, the dragon breathes water. This stream comes out of his mouth in order to swamp the woman, in order to capture her. Now, she's delivered and protected. But in that imagery, what we are given is a way in which the devil seeks to overwhelm us, even in this day, overwhelm us with lies, with the dishonesty that comes from his mouth, with the deception that he spews from his, from his mouth against the church. And one of the primary ways that he does that currently and in the context of our world is by attacking endlessly the Word of God, by working persistently to convince us that the Bible is not the Bible. You see, the devil knows too that our entire faith comes to us through the Word, comes to us from the Word. That 
that apart from that word, we have no reason to know the things that God has taught us or to believe the things that God has given us. And so he focuses his fiercest attacks on that word, making us to wonder, is it true? How do we know it's true? How do we know it's not just some grand myth, some made-up system of faith? How do we know that that the disciples after Jesus died didn't get together and say, you know what, this is too good of a project to, to let die now with Jesus. We've got to work something up to make it, to make it carry on. And, and Mark, why don't you go write a gospel? And Matthew, you, got, you, you, you confer with Mark. The two of you come up with something. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to build this enormous theological edifice out of nothing. That's what the world says to us about the Bible. That's how the world attacks the Word of God. It says to us, this is just the ravings of some men who hoped it was true. It is no more true than any other holy book in all of the world. And into that world we are called to defend our faith. Into that world we are to cling to our faith in Jesus Christ. But how can we do that under so fierce an attack? What do we have that can respond to so great an assault, so great a uh, uh, an opening and, and spewing forth of lies from the, the devil himself. How can we stand against that? Well, we have at our disposal, among other things, certainly our Belgic Confession, which helps us and teaches us what it is that we are to believe concerning the Word of God. And, and we ought to approach especially now article three of the belgic confession in light of what it is that we saw last time we need to pick up again that that idea of the special revelation of god to us because it's important to understand as the catechism said in article two that god makes himself more openly known to us by his holy and divine word as much as we need in this life for his glory and for our salvation, or for the salvation of His own. That's where we need to start in our understanding of what the Bible is. What is the Bible? What is this book that we call the Bible? How do we define it? How do we describe it? What is it to us? For some, it is just a history book. A book that recounts events that took place a long time ago. For many people, it's nothing it's just a fairy tale for others it's a book of morality it's a book that tells you how to live your your best life now how do we as confessing christians approach the bible what is it that we're talking about when it comes to this word that we claim that we believe that we understand is from god and the confession helps us approach the word of god by telling us this is God's special word to his people, to his church, concerning what he's done for their salvation. Notice that. It is a word to us about what God has done in order to accomplish for us salvation. He's already done it. He's accomplished that salvation. Now He wants us to know it. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to revel in it, to rejoice in it. You can imagine here, maybe a father, in the days before there were text messages and all the rest, before there was such ease of communication, maybe there was a father somewhere whose, whose son was, was imprisoned 
because he couldn't pay some debt, because he couldn't, couldn't pay his, his creditors what they were owed. But the father, working tirelessly and diligently, finally manages to put enough, together enough money to pay for the son's debt, and he goes to the creditors, and he dispenses with the debt. And now, and now to his son, he writes this letter saying, Son, here's what's happened. You're free. You are delivered. He did the deed of delivering his son, but then he also made sure that his son learned of it, that his son who was in prison and in this dark place, this place of oppression and misery, no longer had to stay there but could be free, that his heart could leap with joy and that he could stand amazed at the love of his father. God has a special concern for us, a concern that communicates to us what it is that he's accomplished so that we might be free. Now that ought to already very much change the approach that we take to our study of God's Word. As we open that Bible, as we listen to it, we will indeed be confronted by history. We are going to learn the names of Babylonian kings, let alone Israelite kings, Roman emperors, and the like. There is much history to be found in that book, of course, there is. And there will be much wisdom to be found in that book, too. You cannot be but impressed by books like the book of Proverbs with its careful and wise instruction on how to live the full life or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that begins with those beatitudes about blessed, uh, the blessed ones who live in a particular way. Yes, we're going to learn about how it is that we should live within the kingdom of God. But before we ever turn a page, before we ever enter into that study of His Word, what ought to be emblazoned upon our hearts is this truth, that the Word of God is the message of salvation for us from God in Christ through His love and mercy. And it truly is in that way, that love letter, that very special revelation of God's saving grace. It also helps us, by the way, to go through some of the tough passages of Scripture. When we're reading through maybe Numbers or Leviticus, when we're going through maybe some of the Old Testament prophets and we wonder to ourselves, how is this relevant to me? How is this at all useful to me? What we ought to remember is that the Lord has taken great pains for you to know these things because He wants you to understand just how deep His love for you is. That ought to motivate us then to open that Word, to study that Word, and to seek the things of God, to hear of this grace that the Lord has worked for us in Jesus Christ, His Son. That is to say that the Bible should be for us a very special book, a book that speaks of what God has accomplished on our behalf. It is not a book about what men think God did. It's not a book where men aspire to, to maybe understand something of who God is. It is not a book written by those trying to climb up into the presence of God. It is a book in which God comes down to us and gives to us that word of hope and of life in Jesus Christ. What a God we serve who's so con whose concern for us is so great that He gives to us a word 
to encourage our hearts. That ought to bring us to value this word. How many of us don't have Bibles in our homes that are maybe gathering dust? How many of us have failed to value and to rest in the wonder of God's word, to make a a point of studying and listening to that word? Precisely because we need our hearts encouraged by this God. We ought to be a people of the Word. Not seeking to to find some mysterious truth that is hidden behind some crazy language or some weird imagery, but rather to just hear what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. To know that we are loved and redeemed. It also means that we ought to recognize this is a Word not for everyone. This is not a word that is given to everyone. It is a word given to His church. Understand that while there is much in the Bible that speaks to the world, indeed, there are times when the prophets have prophecies regarding the world. Yet the truth is, the word is for the church. It is written to us that we might know what God has done. Now it becomes our responsibility to go out into all the world to share what that is that God has done, to speak of the great things of God, even as we've just sung. Whether that's in our home to our children, whether that's at work or to our neighbors, we are the ones that are to take that word into the world, but the word is written for us, for the people of God, for those who have been redeemed in Jesus Christ. And that's how we're to approach this word. That's how we're to understand why this word has been given to us. It's been given that we might know what God has done. Now, having said that, having said why the Bible exists, does not yet answer how or, or in what way the Bible came to be. And that becomes then the, the focus of Article 3 in particular And it starts maybe in a a way that is different than we'd anticipate. Because Article 3 says that we confess that this Word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Now, we don't want to press, put too much weight or press too hardly uh, to to, uh, put too much weight on the word spoke, uh, But it is intriguing, isn't it, that Guido de Bren, the writing of this Belgic Confession, doesn't first say that God, uh, or that holy men of God wrote the Scriptures, but that God, the holy men of God, rather spoke. And and that, that, that corresponds to much of what we find in the Bible. When we read, for example, through the prophets and We hear how they open by saying, thus says the Lord, and their word was a word to be given to the nations, to Israel, to those around them. It was a word first spoken, not first written. And even if you think of the first five books of the Bible, you think of Moses' writing of the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, writing them for the church as they're entering into the promised land, that they might know who their God is, that they might know how they're to live in fellowship and in, 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 in faithfulness towards this God. Yet remember that much of that history, certainly the book of Genesis, which comprises a rather significant period of time, 
was not something that Moses was given as a book. It was something that had been per, uh, that had been preserved through the ages. That that Adam had taught Seth, who had taught his son, who had spoken the word, who carried these stories, these stories of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. These are stories that were told around the fire in the home by God's people and then were collected and written down only after the fact by Moses or by the prophets or by the prophet's servants. Indeed, so much of the New Testament, we can see this connection to the spoken word as well. When we read the Gospels, we read the story of Jesus' ministry, of His speaking, not of His writing down, but of His ministering amongst the people. We can see in some of the New Testament books, many of them, of course, are letters, and so were written down, unless, of course, like the Apostle Paul in so many instances, dictated them so that a scribe would write them down, his hands having been damaged by a silversmith, and so he had a hard time writing, and so he would speak the word, and then that would be recorded, which is also why many of his letters give that, exp- give that uh, a witness of a spoken word as opposed to a carefully crafted letter. But we also find letters in the New Testament that are sermons, are words spoken first and foremost. And what we want to ask ourselves, noting this truth about our Bibles, that so much of it is first a word spoken, is why is that? What what does that mean? And how does that impact the way that we view the Bible? We know, of course, that there are more things spoken than just what's recorded in the Bible. The Apostle John tells us that. If all the things that Jesus did and said were recorded in the books, he says there wouldn't be enough room in all the world for them. But why are these things recorded? Why are these things written down for us? And we are helped when we continue or when we, when we recognize the significance of the spoken word, of that ministry of God whereby he gives his word, a word that is so central to everything he's doing. Remember how the story begins that God with His Word calls life into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then remember how He gives that Word along the way, how He speaks a word of promise to Adam. He speaks a word of hope and of command to Noah. He speaks a word of promise to Abraham. Abraham who heard that Word and believed. Indeed, that's the thing, isn't it? That's what happens when you hear a word proclaimed, when you hear a message calling out to you, when the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, when they spoke that word into the ears of their hearers, when Elijah went into Ahab's court and says, there will be no rain until I say. That is a word that confronts, that is a word that challenges, and above all else, that is a word that calls. For a spoken word, a word that is proclaimed, is a word that must be believed, a word that must be embraced, a word that must be accepted or rejected. That word of God that comes is the word of His promise and of His power. We see this most clearly, don't we, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. Jesus confronts us. Jesus challenges us. Jesus calls us. 
calls us to surrender our lives, to put our trust in Him. That's what the Bible does, doesn't it? That's how the Bible ministers to us. It it is not neutral. It is not just information. It is not something you can simply read and walk away from and think, well, that was interesting, but now I can forget it. It is a word that demands a response. A word from God calling you to trust in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the wonder, isn't it, of our Bibles. That's the wonder of God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ as He comes to us. That Word is close to us. That Word is not far away. We don't have to go up into heaven or down into the depths. It is near us that we might believe in the One whom God has sent. That we might believe in this Word of power. It is indeed a Word of power, isn't it? So often we see how the word of power is expressed not only in the creation, but in the redemption of God's people. We read of these things in the New Testament particularly, but they're found in the Old Testament as well. You think of people like Naaman who came to Elisha, an unbeliever, a dead sinner, a lost and blind man. But the word came. The word was spoken to him and his heart was changed. You think of the Thessalonian Christians. You think about how Paul, as he writes to them, encourages them by saying, we know that what we said, the gospel came to you in power because you believed what we preached to you. That's what the Word of God commands us to do. You see, our commitment to the Word of God, our valuing of the Word of God, is not first and foremost to fill our heads with knowledge. It's not first and foremost so that we can go around quoting Scripture, though there's certainly something valuable about being able to do that. But it's not about being able to say, I know more than you know. I'm more insightful into the the questions and the issues of the Bible than you are. Oh no, the Bible's a living document. It is a word spoken. It is a word calling out to us. Commanding us to trust in the One who is revealed upon its pages. For He is on every page of this Scripture. He is the one who confronts us at every point as he shows to the two brothers on the road to Emmaus going through all of the law and the prophets and saying, thus was it all prophesied of me. Of me, says Jesus, that we might believe in him. Thus you might say, the Bible is a living witness of God's work of salvation by grace alone. For God has given us this word. He didn't have to, but He's chosen to, in His mercy, give us this word so that we might know what it is that He's accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. But it's also a word that calls us to live by faith alone. That the Bible itself demands of us a surrender to Jesus Christ. To not stand in judgment of it, but rather to submit to its call. You see, that's the, that's the difference between the believer and the world, you understand. That's the difference about our approach to the Bible and to all things of the faith. The unbeliever, our human nature, we don't speak ill of anyone at this point. We acknowledge it's our, our own reality. Our human nature wants to sit in judgment on God. 
Our human nature wants to sit in judgment on this word. We want to say, God, you have to prove to me that this is your word. That's, that's sort of par for the course, isn't it? Surely. After all, think about the uh, Quran, uh, uh, the Muslim holy book. Think about how Gabriel gave the words of the Quran to Muhammad. And now when Muhammad comes down from the mountain and says to those who are following him, Gabriel has spoken to me, then, then he gives to his words, to that work of the Quran, a certain weight and significance. You must believe it for it is the Word of God. Well, how can we know, Muhammad, that it is the Word of God? Well, because I saw a vision of Gabriel. Because he spoke to me. Joseph Smith copied this, the father of the Mormons. Moroni, the angel, apparently informed him as to where these, pla- these, these uh, plates were that he translated into what is the Book of Mormon. There is this miraculous, this divine coming down and going, here's the truth. Because that's what you need. If you want people to believe you, if you want people to believe your book, you've got to add some pizzazz. You've got to add some kind of, of divine evidence that what you're saying is true. Otherwise, why would anybody believe you? But even if that were true, even if that were true, that God should give to us some kind of spectacular vision that tells us the Bible's His Word, even if God were to allow us to sit in judgment on Him, us to say, God, prove Yourself to us, and He says, okay, fine, I will prove Myself to you. That would not make anyone believe that it is the Word of God. After all, does everyone in the world believe the Quran is the Word of God? Despite its apparent miraculous reception? Does anybody believe, does everybody believe that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, despite apparently its divine involvement? No, of course not. We question these things, and rightly so. We wonder about the truth of these things. Of course we do. So why would we be surprised that our world also sits in judgment on the Word of God and says no? No, no, that's not the Bible. That's not the divine-inspired, God-breathed Scriptures. That can't be. That's foolishness. You're no better than the Mormons or the Muslims or any of the other religion. You see, when you start by standing in judgment on the Word of God, when you say it or he has to prove himself to me because I'm more important, then you will never be satisfied until you sit upon the throne of heaven and earth. But if you surrender yourself to the Lord, that is, if you say, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. If you approach the Word as it is, as God has revealed it to be, His special Word to you of what He's accomplished in Jesus Christ, a Word that calls out from you and commands you to believe, then you find yourself with eyes wide open with ears able to hear the Word and the will of God and encouraged by His grace. A grace that is so wonderful, so remarkable that every word in this book is from Him. That's what the 
confession goes on to say, doesn't it? Afterwards, our God, it says, because of the special care he is for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles to commit this revealed word to writing. He himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law, and therefore we call such writings holy and divine scripture. There's a lot that we can say here on the uh, principles of inscripturation about how it is that God brought about the, 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 the recording of the 66 books of our Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. They can be counted in different ways, by the way. Sometimes you see lists that are counted in different ways. Maybe there's not a first and second Samuel. Maybe there's just a Samuel. Sometimes uh, the book of Lamentations is rolled up into the book of Jeremiah. The lists can differ, but as we have our Bibles now, and as they've always been, it's 66 books from Genesis to Revelation in two testaments declaring to us the glory of God, written by, by many different authors, written uh, sometimes by rather surprising authors. After all, the king of Babylon has an inspired chapter in our Bible, which is to its, itself just remarkable. But what we believe about all of this is that every word is the revealed word of God. That is to say, it's not just the ideas of the Bible that are important to us. Oh, they are important to us, undoubtedly. And it's not just the, the basic message, the, the overall truth. It is every word. Every word that God has called His servants, the prophets, and the apostles to write. Sometimes you, you hear people say that the Bible contains the Word of God. It is. It's, it's, it's in there somewhere. you just got to find it. And there are bits and pieces that aren't any good, that aren't really that important. And we do bump into those bits and pieces, don't we? We read certain parts of the Bible and they make us uncomfortable. We sang this morning from Psalm 137, but we didn't sing all of Psalm 137 because it makes us uncomfortable. The end of it is a bit disturbing. We're not sure what to do with that bit. We sang last week from, or the week before, from Psalm 109. And that's a psalm that'll make you sit up and take notice. That's a psalm that makes you uncomfortable too. And so it's sometimes tempting to say, yeah, well, that's, that's just that. That's Old Testament. That's, that doesn't really belong anymore when we're ministering to those who are maybe challenging us on the Bible and say, how can, you, how can you live with this level of violence and this level of cruelty? God, killing so many babies. Are you going to tell me that's okay? And we want to say, well, wait, what, what, you know, just a minute now. That's not the inspired Word of God. Just let's leave the Old Testament. Let's just run to the New Testament and Jesus Christ and the, and the love of God and, and and this sort of thing. We dismiss the revelation of God as though we can sit and decide what belongs and what doesn't. And there are, of course there are, challenges to our interpretation of the Bible that we need to acknowledge. There are times when we need to, to say, wait a second, is, is this a passage that should be interpreted literally? Is this a passage that should be interpreted figuratively? You deal with poetry different than you deal with history. You deal with, with uh, the, 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 apocalypse, the apocalyptic literature of Daniel and Revelation differently than you deal with the letters of Paul and Peter. 
we have to bring our skills and our tools to bear, and, and we have to do that in the way that the Lord has revealed to us in His Word. That is, since we can't sit in judgment on Scripture, since we can't decide what God says, since only God can tell us what God says, therefore the basic principle for interpreting Scripture is this, that Scripture interprets Scripture. God tells us what God means. Now, sometimes he does that in very obvious ways. You read in Genesis chapter 2 about the birth or the creation of men and women in marriage. And you maybe wonder about that, find that intriguing, and you carry on in your readings, but you tuck it in the back of your mind until you get to Ephesians 5. And there Paul says, you remember what you read in Genesis 2? Yeah, let me tell you what that means. And then Paul tells us exactly what it means. Scripture interprets Scripture. And sometimes that means that you have to know the, the big picture. You need to understand how it all fits together. Sometimes that means you've got to drill down into the basics. You've got to get into the words and into the phrases. It's all good. It's all important. It's all necessary. But it begins with a commitment to understanding what our confession here teaches, that God, for His concern for our salvation, commanded His servants and prophets and the apostles to commit his word to writing. That he said, I want it all recorded. I want my people to miss not a word. Let not a word drop to the ground. And so as God's people, we have complete and utter confidence in every word of the Bible from beginning to end. We don't always understand them. We don't always feel comfortable with them. Sometimes, as Peter tells us about Paul's writing, they're tough to understand. Paul's writings can be tough. But this we know, that it is all a revelation of God to us that we accept and receive with thanksgiving and joy. And we stand firm upon this foundation that in this Word, God Himself speaks. And that's the foundation that allows us to survive the tsunami of lies that comes against us in this world. That there is so many different theories and philosophies and ideas that can be overwhelming to have to try to work through. And what a blessing and privilege it is for us then to be able to turn to this Word and to know that upon the foundation of that Word we have absolute security. That we can stand for it will not move. It is a word from the beginning to the end. It is a word that has lasted generations. It is a word that has sustained, formed, shaped the church from the beginning of time till now. And so we stand upon a word that gives us strength, that gives us truth, that gives us insight and understanding into who our God is and what He's done on our behalf. We live in a world of lies. We live in a world of dishonesty and deception. That's what the Apostle told us, didn't he, about the godlessness of the last days. Maybe the most challenging part of that chapter was when he said that they're going to go get stronger and better and we're going to get weaker and worse. And you think sometimes in the challenges of life, in the sorrows of life, have I made the right decision? Have I made the right choice? Do I, am, I, am I walking in the right way? 
And then we turn to our Word and we find in that Word the security and strength that we need. We hear again of God's love for us, of His call to us, of His graciousness, His gracious provision for us. And then we say, let God be true and all men a liar. I'll believe Him. It's a simple bit of a slogan. It's a bit of a slogan, isn't it? Sometimes you see it in various places, bumper stickers, that sort of thing. God has said it. I believe it. And that ends it. And yet there is a profound truth there. There is a humble heart. There is a believing spirit there that says, God, I see what you've done. I rejoice in what you've accomplished. And I submit myself to you. That's what our Bibles require. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so loved us that you have given us your word. That word not only in the flesh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but also in the written form. Words that we can have in our homes, words that we can have on our phones, words that we can listen to, read to us, words that we can read and understand. Lord, we understand that we live in a world that is anti-Christ, that is anti-Your Word, and that's going to work very hard to try and undermine our commitment to Your Word. That's going to try and say, look at all these contradictions in the Bible. Look at all these things in the Bible that, that don't, uh, don't fit the modern expectation. Are you really going to say you believe these things? And Lord, sometimes we, we don't know. We don't understand these things. But in those moments, Lord, when we are tempted to stand in judgment upon You and Your Word, when the world says, come, let us condemn God, help us to know that in that moment we have to stand upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, the foundation and the refuge that does not move, as revealed in Your Word, as recorded for us in Your Scripture. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.